Welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. Welcome to a speed shop like no other. In my, what I laughingly call a career, I've interviewed government ministers, uh, heads of multinational corporations, and our prime minister. But never interviewed anybody like Ian Flux, or Fluxy, as he's known to the British motorsport community. He's been racing for half a century. He started out as Graham Hill's mechanic, and he's raced in just about anything and everything that people would pay him to race. He has no filter. I was warned about this, but I really wanted to get him on the show. And he's written a book. It's called... Well, it's the title of the book is what he used to have written on his helmet, For Flux's Sake, although I suggested that No Flux Given might be an alternative title. If you are at all bothered by... Uh, language, most of it's bleeped out um, you might want to give this one a miss but Dawn, it's so entertaining he was such a great guest my guest this week <laughs> on Speed Shop, brace yourselves Ian Flux Fluxy I was watching you racing, you? yes I was on, U- <laughs> on, U- on YouTube last night and uh, at the end of the race I think you came, I think you came second and the only people who hadn't crashed were you and the guy that won can you remember? Can you remember that race? No. The Tuscans at the Birmingham Super Prix. Oh, oh no! That, yeah, that God for me, that was nineteen ninety. I've never seen so many cars go off in a <laughs> in a race. It was ridiculous. I've got a theory, which I'm going to try out on you. And the theory yeah. is this: those Tuscans were a real handful. But best cars ever. Best, pe- best championship I've ever done. Wow. But we'll come back to that in a sec. Yeah. The lads that were racing in it got used to getting on the grass at Donington or Brands or wherever. Yeah. And then just collecting it all back up and getting back on the tarmac. But they couldn't yeah. do that at Birmingham because instead of grass, there was just armco and concrete. What do you reckon well, to be theory? What, obviously where my Monaco experience came into it. Right. So the best, done it a few times. The best championship you've ever driven in, you say? Yeah, by miles. Well, go on. Um, well, go on. For so- good reasons. Yeah. Firstly, the cars were great fun to drive, but secondly, the camaraderie, which still exists today between us all 25 years later, was great, and TVR put their heart and soul in it. We had our be- the best hospitality, driving days that we all earned a few quid at. It was, it was just all round fucking great. I seem to remember Colin Blower being pretty good in the Tuscan. Yeah, yeah, Colin won the championship in '92. And my former had the biggest ever crash. Oh yeah, that I've ever seen. And we all thought he was dead. Um, Colin never liked the wet, and it was qualifying at Silverstone Club. And Colin came past me in the wet, which was like fucking unusual at the time. Uh, but little did I know at that point, his throttle was jammed wide open, and uh, he went under the barriers at Brooklands. And everybody just stopped and thought, oh, my God, poor Colin, he's f***ing dead. But uh, luckily, he, he got out with a, a broken ankle. Wow. And TVR's had a reputation for being even more fragile than a Lotus. You know, because people would say... Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you do, don't... They're brilliant, but whatever you do, don't crash one. But then he proved, he proved otherwise by stacking it at huge velocity yeah, and getting away uh, with a broken ankle. Uh, to be fair to all those at TVR, the shafts were fucking strong. It was obviously because the bodywork was coming off regularly because we always hit each other. But 
bits used to fly off, but it was mainly bodywork. I mean, you could finish a race with your rear end missing, like you say, it was the heat, and you'd be out in the final in an hour and a half with a new rear end on it. Shall I tell you what my favourite motor racing photograph is? Yeah, go on. Right, well, it's not got a car in it. <laughs> I hope it's got tits and a fanny. There are no tits or fannies in it either. <laughs> However, there are three grown men wearing speedos in the picture. Oh, yeah, go on then. And it's a photograph, and it's uh, Jim Clark, Jimmy Stewart and Graham Hill oh, yeah. on yeah, a yacht. New Zealand. New Zealand or South Africa. On a yacht, and they're shooting clays off the back of this yacht. In, and they're wearing speedos and sunglasses, <laughs> shooting yeah. They've all got a shotgun, yeah. and I just oh, how think, cool, how cool were those boys? How cool! I just look at it and I think, when I was a kid and I dreamed of, well, I wanted to be Barry, Barry Sheen, obviously, but yeah. when I was yeah. a kid, I dreamed of being like James Hunt or Barry Sheen or whatever. That was yeah. my idea of what motor racing would be. It was like you'd all race and then you'd go off yeah. somewhere. Because even though on the track you were trying to beat each other, you were actually mates in real life, and then you'd yeah. go off and do cool things like that, not go off and, like, do a lot of jogging and go to bed at half past eight. And yeah, all. But, that was like, forget that. I wanted, You wanted the glamour, didn't you? You wanted the... Yeah. But, but, Steve, the, the, the massive difference between those two opposing poles you've just depicted was that they all knew in the 60s and 70s those cars were dangerous and they probably lose five or six mates in a year so they drove against each other with respect that nobody's got anymore and made the most of partying because you might not be there the following weekend to enjoy the party do you remember i wonder floxy do you remember james hunt on superstars do you remember how unfit he was? Yeah. <laughs> he was well, just I, ridiculous. I, I knew James really well because I, I worked for Graham Hill when I was 19. And I, I was actually at Zandvoort working for Graham Hill as the boy when James won the Dutch Grand Prix in 75. And Hesketh took us all into Amsterdam. All the English mechanics, didn't matter if you were a Lotus, Tyrrell, Hill, took us all in if you wanted to go. And at 19, I was in a bar, then in a brothel, all paid for by Hesketh. And I thought, F- me, at 19, this doesn't get any better, does it? Again, <clears throat> my favourite photograph of motor racing doesn't involve uh, a car. And my favourite bit of writing about motor racing doesn't involve a car either. And it's Clive James, remember that geezer, yeah. writing about the... Was it the Las Vegas Grand Prix when they? It was when they had yeah, um, they had a race in the car park at Caesar's yeah. Palace, didn't they? Yeah, eighty four, wasn't it? Yeah, and and he gets down to um, Clive. Clive goes along the pit lane, and he gets along yeah. to where James Hunt was, and there's no one there. Every 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 other every other pit garages, the temporary pit garages, is a hive of activity, yeah. and he writes this big rambling long entry about. The whole thing, the atmosphere, the people, the heat, the unusualness of the situation. And then he said, "There's not only is there no sign of James Hunt, there's no sign of his team, but there is a piece of paper taped to the wall, and on that piece of paper is written, strictly no martinis before 10 a.m. <laughs> How cool is that? And you just, it just, you only need to read that because Clive James is a brilliant writer. Yeah, and you only well, need he, to. He did a lot of work with Jordan, didn't he? He was... Ri- I tell you what, there's a fantastic documentary on YouTube where yeah. he got taken to Australia to race in the support race. Yeah, yeah. And he couldn't even drive a car when... Even though he was a huge motor racer... Well, Barry Sheen hadn't passed his yeah. bike test till he was 28. Um, Clive James didn't even have a driving licence and Sterling teaches him to drive... That was Sterling Moss was a great guy, wasn't he? He was like really, oh, yeah. he was really friendly and nice up until the point yeah. that you pissed him off, and then he switched to being a total bastard in a, in the, in a fraction of a second. But I don't, I I don't think not without justification. I mean, he's like he's dead nice, and then he says, "Clive, just do it like that to him." And you see, Clive James like, "Oh my god, this guy's a serious dude." And then in the actual race, and then he goes to Australia, and Alan Jones mentors him. And yeah. he um, and he did really well. You you watching him race against people who thought they were these celebrities who thought they were a bit handy in a car, 
And yeah, he's, yeah. he's only been driving a car for a few weeks, and he does really well. And you just think, yeah, clever people can just yeah, well, apply themselves to, you know, no matter what situation they put themselves in. And I asked a guy, a guy taught me to ski once, and he said, and he, it yeah. took him, he taught me to ski in an hour. And he said, I've never, we did it, we were making a video for the company that he worked for. So we had to yeah. shortcut everything. And at the end of an hour, I was, I was more or less skiing. And he said, wow, he said, that's the, the quickest, uh, the quickest I've ever taught somebody. I said, why do you think? He said, because we're filming it. So you've got to listen. You've got yeah. to listen because we're filming it. You'd know yeah. this from instructing. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. he said, when I'm teaching people, normally they don't really pay attention. I said, what? They come all the way here. They come all the way here for a skiing holiday. They pay to be instructed. And then they don't listen. He went, no, they don't listen. And then they do oh, something. I can assure you, Steve, it's exactly the same in racing. I've sat with about 20,000 people wow. in my life. Wow. Corporate days and all that shit. And literally, out of 20,000 people, I've probably met 100 people who could drive a racing car if, the, if they were given the opportunity. So let's go back to 19-year-old you. Yeah. How did you get, how did you get that gig with Graham Hill's team? Well, very easily. Um, I... I was a, an apprentice mechanic in a British Leyland garage in Cobham in Surrey. And I didn't want to do it anyway. Um, but the guy around the garage, I, I love working on the pumps. And I'd earn 13 quid a week on, working on the pumps and about 20 quid a week in tips. So I was having a right result. But he convinced me I needed to be a mechanic. And I, I, I hated school. Always, always was in the shit at school. Anyway, he said, oh, you only got to go one day a week. Well, when we got there, it was block release, and you had to do six weeks on, six weeks off. And I got into loads of trouble at college and then got thrown out. And the guy who owned the garage said, look, I've got a friend who's got a racing team. There's four other apprentices. I can't have you back here as you've been kicked out of college. Um, they're looking for a floor sweeper, van driver, team maker. And that was Token F1 team with Tom Price in the start of 1974. Are you still there or have I lost you? No, mate, I'm absolutely... Uh, I, I'm, no, uh, you've not lost me. I'm just... I am just. I mean, normally I, I have a terrible uh, habit of talking over the top of people. Oh, no, but, sorry, because of my shit phone, I thought, oh, fuck, <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> Maybe you're just more interested than other people. That's funny. Uh, people are going to... People who've been on the show are going to be listening. Very, you bastard. What do you mean he's more interested than us? But he is. It's, do, do you think... Uh, uh, so, anyway, I went up to Token on a two-week trial and the guy from the garage said, look, you know, it's up to you, but you're not coming back here either. They want you or don't want you. And literally, I've been there three days, Steve, and it was a light bulb moment. I Before I went there, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do in life, really. And it was just, fuck me, this is great. This is what I want to do. And luckily, I've done it ever since. But so, was it a unique time? Was, was it the rise of the garagists, as, oh, as I believe, so, where, yeah, like, so, there was Chapman and there was Cooper and there was McLaren and there was yeah. people, like, coming later... Uh, and Trojan and... Frank Williams, Ron Dennis, people yeah, like that coming yeah. through, Bernie... I mean, the whole focus of pe people, younger people than us, don't realise that there was a time when Britain wasn't the centre of ser right. serious motor racing. Can I just tell you the whole staff of Token in 1974? Right, go on. So, Tom Price was the driver. Ray Jessup was the designer of the car. Neil Trundle, who was Ron Dennis's partner in Rondell Racing, which had gone bust, and hence the Token was formed out of the ashes of Rondell. Neil Trundle was the chief mechanic. Chris Lewis was the other mechanic. And I was the van driver, team maker, floor sweeper. And that was the entire F1 team. Wow. And they reckon that, is it the average team takes 200 people to a race these days? Yeah, well... And the bigger more teams than, more, more than, than that. that? More than that with the engine crew as well. Good Lord. Fucking ridiculous. Absolute waste of money. Wow. Uh, at the end of the day, we were doing the same job. Okay, maybe not as many Grand Prix, but I think we were doing 16 a year then. But you still had to get a car ready for the Sunday afternoon and run it round for an hour and a half. So nothing's changed, has it? I was watching a documentary about... He was the Welshman, Tom Price, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Sadly killed at South Africa when a 
Marshall ran across the track to put his teammate's car out with a fire extinguisher, and uh, t- uh, Tom came over the rise mm. and hit the marshal, and the fire extinguisher whacked Tom in the face and killed him instantly. Good Lord. Well, well, like you say, maybe the maybe the danger of racing back then bred a different approach. Oh, not for sure. Not just to racing, but to life. Do you think? Yeah, but also, I mean, I know you love your bikes, but I still think the same, there's the same sort of respect on bikes as there was in Formula One in the 60s and 70s with, okay, there's one or two countries move, but most people realise that if you get knocked off a bike, you're going to hurt yourself. When and somebody... They race, race with that in mind. Yeah, when somebody does do something that in Formula One is pretty standard procedure in bikes... It's taken very seriously indeed. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. because because of the consequences. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, as the cars become safer, we were talking about your crash, in, uh, Colin Blower's crash in the TVR. Yeah. But now with the halo and all that sort of stuff in F1, there does seem to be, well, I'd ask you, you'd know much more about this than me. Do you think that the serious question? Do you think that the drivers think that they can't be hurt now because they've seen yeah, they've oh, seen uh, the new yeah, cars slammed into a wall at a hundred miles an hour, yeah, and the guy 100%. just got out of it? A thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. They've, right. got, they've got no worry about dying in a Formula One car, current yeah. Formula One car. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, the, ca- the cars are enormous now, aren't they? I don't I don't yeah. think the public realise how big the cars have got. Now, I'll tell you what, when it really came home to me, because I've, I've never raced it, but I've driven Hecky Rosberg's car quite a lot from 1982 for various people in historics. And when they did that thing um, a few years ago on Sky, and it, uh, uh, Nico was in his Mercedes and Kecky was driving that Williams round, you think, Jesus, look at the size difference. Yeah, yeah. Because, so, uh, you know, they were all similar size about that time. You think, oh my God, they're half a car bigger again, aren't they? Well, this is this is the this is the thing with modern road cars. It seems so easy to get seven, eight, hundred, a thousand horsepower out of an yeah. engine. It's almost like it, for. I gloss over a bit when they say, when I read, I get a news report, I get an email and it says, new South African built or Brazilian built or Chinese built supercar will top 300 miles an hour and have 1500 brake horsepower. I'm like, well, listen, pal, back in the day when we were getting 150 brake horsepower out of a BDA motor, you know, when we were getting, if if you, if somebody said, oh yeah, you know, his, uh, his escort, it's got. It's been on a rolling road and it's got 150 brake horsepower. People were like, oh my god! It was like the end of the world, wasn't it? And but but it was the power was hard won. You had to go to people who knew what they were doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, Guy Croft passed not that recently, and and you know, if you were into those twin cam uh, Lampredi Fiat motors. He was the man. He was the man in the world. He was like, what he did with those motors was almost like black magic. He probably knew them better than the people who designed them and built them in the first place because they'd done that and then moved on to some something else, whereas he'd spent the majority of his working life just specialising in that one engine and so probably knew it better than anyone else alive and knew how to get it to make way, way more power than it was ever intended to and still hold together. Do you know an old boy called Peter Baldwin who's raced, he still races to this day, but very famous for racing minis for years and years and years. The only people I know that race minis are your contemporaries like Jonathan Lewis and people. people. Yeah, he's, well, he's still but, winning, but, that Peter guy. Was, still winning Peter, in minis. Peter still to this day, if, if you want your racing mini rolling roaded, you go to Peter, yeah. um, who's now 74 years old at Cambridge, and he'll find out of what you thought was your best engine, he'll find you another four or five horsepower out of your mini engine to race with. And, you know, like you were saying about the bloke with the Alpha, he's done nothing else since early 1970 other than work on mini engines. 
Well, the second that the engine fires, I, I've been there with um, a guy who's like that with Porsche, uh, with 911s, they're cool Porsches. The yeah. second that someone cranks it, he can tell whether it's going to make good power. Literally the second. Because, yeah. and, and people would be like, well, he can't possibly until it's been properly run through. And I said, no, no, no. It's like when you, like a, a mate of mine who's a really talented musician. It's the 10,000 hour thing, isn't it? They say, if you devote 10,000 hours to something, you become an expert, a maestro. My pal I is... I still come too quickly. <laughs> my, pal's, my pal's a musician. And if you, whatever you said to him, if you said to him, play, play U2 or play Beethoven or whatever, he'll just start yeah. playing it because he spent so much time playing guitar and he had a talent to start with. And he's developed that talent over like... 40 years and he yeah. can just do it he could just talking, doesn't need talking, to think about it he could just do it you, you, you remind me of one thing I, I'm not jealous of many people but I'm quite jealous of Rob Wilson I don't know if you've heard of Rob but he, yes, he coaches all, all the Red Bull drivers yeah I've heard of Rob Wilson what has he has he just got a natural ability yeah but also sorry the reason I'm saying I'm jealous of him but he can fucking sing as well, and he's the only racing driver I've raced against who's also had a, a genuine UK number one. And you think, bastard. Did he? Yeah, yeah. What was he that? Was in, he was in Edison Lighthouse. Uh, oh, wow. Um, love love Grows? Love Grows where, where my Rosemary goes, Edison yeah, Lighthouse? Yeah. yeah. He was wow. the bass guitarist. He was the bass guitarist and backing singer in that. Hey, I'm not sure about that, you know, because, Flux, say, do you not remember Chris Barber? Yeah. Chris Barber's yeah, jazz band. Uh, yeah. And, and he had, he raced that Lotus, didn't he? Daddio. D-A-D-10. Daddio. Yeah, 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 he did. Yeah, he passed up. He passed. It was funny, there were quite a few musicians back then, because Billy Cotton, the band leader, was a racing driver yeah, as well, I'm, wasn't I'm he? Sorry, uh, sorry, Steve. Well, I should have added is somebody, a contemporary of mine that I've raced against, who's had a number one. Ah, right, yeah, of course. No, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to riff on that thing of musicians who's, who've also raced. Because nowadays, nowadays, of course, you've got people, well, there's quite a few, isn't there? There's like, Howard, Howard out of take that, uh, Rick Parfit Jr., obviously. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a talented oh, geezer. Oh, can I tell you a Chris Rea story, please, while you're on? Please do. So this is about um, maybe 12, 15 years ago at Silverstone. And I've, that's where I live. I mean, I've coached there for years, and it's my local place of going to work. Anyway, there's an old boy that's been at Silverstone for years called Silverstone Sid. He's, like, in charge of safety and track management. But basically, he, everybody knows him. He's now 90, so he's retired a few years. But... Always there anyway. Chris Rear had turned, turned up and he had a, a brand new road going Ferrari 550 and it had done about 200 miles. Anyway, I'm talking to Sid. Chris Rear comes up and starts chatting and I, he, Sid introduces me to him because I, I knew who he was, but I hadn't spoken to him before. Anyway, Sid says to him, Oh, why don't you get Fluxy to take your uh, 550 round with you? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So we jump in. I'll jump in the driver's seat, Chris in the passenger seat. Anyway, I do, like, because I spotted it's only done 200 miles, I, I did three laps quite gently. And he said to me, oh, go on, give it a bit of a go, lad. So we come on to the hangar straight. And so the last time I was going down there, it was probably about 100 miles an hour. So I get it up to 145, stand on the brakes at Stowe, and then get on the power, going out the apex like you would properly. And he, he said, fucking hell, mate. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I don't want it trashed. I said, no. Yeah, I said, you told me to give it a go. He said, well, I didn't mean like that. So we went back to the pits. And he said, you've just devalued that thing by a grand. Shall I tell, shall I tell you my Chris Rear story? Yeah, come on. Well, for the last 10 years or so, I don't know if people would know this, and I don't see why they would, unless you lived in the northwest of England. I've been yeah. earning an honest coin by talking in between records on the radio on a, on a breakfast right. show up here in the Northwest. And the show was a classic rock show. So I, it's finished now, which is a shame because I enjoyed it, but everything has its time. And yeah. as a consequence, I got to meet and interview most of the greats like, you know, Brian May, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, Alice Cooper, Gene Simmons, oh, Billy Gibbons. Impressed. All the, thank you, man. 
All the yeah. classic rock guys, including Brian Johnson, who obviously does a bit of racing. Yeah. As yeah. a Chevron, which is a proper racing car from Bolton, from Bolton, yeah, Lancashire. Yeah. Anyway. Raced a few of those. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so um, my boss says to me, right, um, got an interview with you, Chris Rea. You've got to go to Abbey Road Studios in London. I said, great. Yeah. And he said, when do you want to do it? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I've been invited to a party by Triumph at the Bike Shed, which is this new, I don't know why you'd know it, but it's this new venue in London that's like a sort of swanky cafe bar for b- bikers. It's for the sort of the Shoreditch, Hackney, trendy, young biker crowd. No, Great I, place. I wouldn't, I wouldn't no, but it's, it's a cracking place. And Triumph had this party, free drinks. Yeah. So I said, can I do... Can I do it on, like, the Saturday morning? Because the party's on the Friday. And he said, yeah. He said, it's all arranged. You go down to Abbey Road on the Saturday morning. You'll see Chris. You'll interview him. He'll spend some time with you. Tell you about his new album. And you talk to him about cars. Because I knew he was a big Ferrari man because he made that film that wasn't very good. Although the album that went with it was pretty good. Anyway, I go down to London and I go to this party. And I end up in the corner. And I'm going to say a name now that you know. I end up in a corner. There are all these, like, fashionable, beautiful people. And then in the corner, there's me, Jamie Whitton, Carl Fogarty, and Steve Stavros Parrish. Oh, my mate. <laughs> yeah. Stavros. And we are getting... Got a few stories about him. We are getting, as we say up here, mate, Kaleid. Yeah. In yeah. other words, very drunk on Triumph. Yeah. Thank you, Triumph, on Triumph's yeah. free alcohol. So drunk, in fact, that when we came out... One of our party hailed a taxi, got in the taxi, told the taxi driver where his hotel was. The taxi driver drove literally across the street, about 30 foot, (laughs) pulled up because the hotel was on the other side of the street, and then tried to charge him seven quid for the ride. And we had to restrain the man from hitting the taxi driver. I mean, he's he's worth a bob or two, this lad. And we were just like, just give him his... We couldn't stop laughing. Just give him his money. I'm not paying him. I've been robbed, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I wake up the next morning. The alarm goes, and I'm thinking, why am I awake? And I'm thinking... Oh, yeah, I've got to go to Abbey Road, the world-famous Abbey Road Studios, to interview yeah. Chris Rea. So I go outside, and I look at my Ducati, which is chained to the lamppost outside, and I thought, no, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, we'll leave that there. And then I look behind me at my bicycle, Pinky. I got a pink yeah. bicycle because I thought nobody'd nick it. You know, like they put those criminals in pink jumpsuits to stop them escaping yeah, yeah. from jail. I had a yeah, pink yeah. bicycle. We called it Pinky. Nipple pink it was. Yeah. It was actually a Moser. It was a pretty good bike, but I painted it pink to stop because my bikes kept getting nicked. I thought, I'll, I'll cycle. I set off on the bicycle from North London to get down to where Abbey Road is. I got about yeah. a mile, and then I thought, I've. Here was the problem. The action of cycling was making me drunk again because what it's doing, oh. well, obviously, cycling, yeah. it's making you mm. puff and blow, and it's sending mm. the blood roaring round, and the alcohol that's still in your system. Anyway. I thought, right, I chained it up and I got in the tube. I got in the tube and I went down into the tube. I was stood on the platform and I thought, oh, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be sick. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I ended up getting a taxi all the way from where I was in North. That was the only way I could get there. I got there on time. I went in and I said, oh, I'm here to see Chris Rear. They said, yeah, what's your name? Oh, yes, Steve. Yeah, we're expecting you. Just sit over there. Would you like a coffee? Like 45 minutes later, I'm thinking, what's going on here? Yeah. About 15 minutes later, the woman said to me, yeah, Chris is just uh, a little bit delayed. Would you like to go through to the canteen? We've got a lovely canteen. All oh, right, okay. So I thought, yeah, if I had something to eat, it'd probably steady the ship. So I went through yeah. to the canteen, had a little bit of something to eat, and then I thought, right, if I'm going to keep this toast, tea and toast down, I have to sit perfectly still for about half an hour. So I'm sat yeah. there in the corner minding my own beeswax, and Chris Rear comes into the canteen. On, there's only me and him in there. He comes in, gets a brew, doesn't acknowledge me, doesn't say anything to me, and goes out. But I didn't do anything because I was thinking, if I get up and move, there's every chance yeah, I'm going to throw, throw, throw up. So after about another hour, by this time I've been there over, well over two hours. I thought, I'm going home in five minutes. If I don't get to see this guy in five minutes, I'm going home. All of a sudden, that woman appears. Yes, Chris would like to see you now in the studio. Can I take you up there? I said, yeah. yeah. And I thought, I feel a bit better. And I'll tell you what, Fluxy. He was an absolute gentleman, a joy to be with. He said, Steve, I'm going to take you on a guided tour of Abbey Road. He took me all round Abbey Road. He said, oh, I knew the Beatles. This is John and this is and George Martin. I knew George Martin. And this is where he used to sit and all this. 
And I was like, I can't believe this. This is fantastic. And then yeah. he was telling me all about racing caterums and his passion for Ferrari and everything that he'd done. And he was really honest and open. And, and I thought, when I went home, I was feeling all right by this point. And so I spent, yeah. again, I spent most of the afternoon with the guy. And I was going home on the tube and I thought, what the hell was all that about? He kept me waiting yeah. for nearly two and a half hours. I was, to yeah. be honest, there was a few... And then he was just the nicest guy, the nicest guy. But he's had his health problems, hasn't he, in recent times, as Chris? You, oh, I, I, yeah, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. A gentleman. It was a, it was a pleasure yeah, well, to meet, a, a, and a I, genuine I, 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 enthusiast. A, not one of these celebrities that pretends they like cars, and then when you start talking yeah. to him, you realise it's yeah. a bit of Billy bullshit, and they know nothing. He yeah. knew his onions. He knew his stuff, yeah. Chris. Rea. Well, I, I must say, in our short time together. I, I thought he came over as a really passionate, nice bloke. Isn't it funny? <laughs> until, I, until I jumped on the brakes. Yeah. Isn't it sideways. funny, Floxy, when you get somebody in a car with you and they're not prepared for what's going to happen? I, I did... Um, I, you, I mean, you're, you're ten times the driver I'm ever going to be, but... And I know that because I know people who rate you very highly indeed. And I... You've been I, speaking to my mum. Not to your mother, to, well, to people like, well, I'll mention his name in a second because we'll go off at a tangent, but um, I was doing a piece for an Italian car magazine and we were doing V12 mid-engine Ferraris, so we I drove a Countach, I drove a Diablo, and then next up was the Murthy Lago, but on the day, Kel surprised, the damn thing wouldn't come out of limp mode, so I couldn't drive it properly and they had to arrange for me to drive it another time. So the bloke who's delivered it gets in it alongside me. And I say, right, are we off? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I said, well, are you, coming, are you coming with? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, is he sitting here to make sure that I behave myself? Yeah, yeah. So I get it up to more or less flat out. And the guy was literally, literally clinging to like, to, to, to the surface. So I slowed down for a roundabout and I went through the gears and I said, are you all right? And he said, uh, no, no, I'm not all right. And I said, why? And he said, he said, well, I thought you were going to stick to the speed limit. And I said, what would be the point of that? What is that? I mean, seriously, sometimes you don't think, what's the point of a 200 mile an hour car? Putting it, putting aside, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, there's nothing I, I like a supercar as much as the next man, unless the next man is like uh, Chris Harris or, or one of the one of the new the new breed of Top Gear presenters. Market. First, first mention of Top Gear, we are just over half an hour in. I usually mention it in the first five minutes. But, I, I saw, well, I saw a bloke, there was a bloke in the paper the other day, a couple of days ago, a bloke down in Kent, and, yeah. he, and he's up for doing 201 miles an hour on the road. Right. In an Audi. Yeah. And I, why and, would you want to do that? Well, he's, I'd tell you why. Right, so the other thing he's, he's up for, I should, probably shouldn't talk about it because it's an ongoing case, but... Um, I, I'll briefly come to my point, which is this. You're, there are a lot of people watching, like, Top Gear or consuming motor yeah. media, which seems to be obsessed with these super-fast road cars. But the reality of owning those super-fast road cars is if you use them to their full potential, you are going to jail, do not pass yeah. go, do not yeah. collect £200. That guy is looking at 18 months in jail to two years yeah. in jail for that. Well, I don't know. Why doesn't he just go and do a track day? Exactly. Or why doesn't he go racing? I'll tell you why he doesn't want to go racing. Because it costs too much money. So let's go back to you as 19-year-old. No, can, can I You've just hit uh, uh, one of my favourite points. So do you know how popular track days are? Well, are these popular as they used to be, Fluxy? Cause no, more, more so. More yeah, so, it's right. ridiculous. You know, you, you get 80 people on a track day and they're available five days a week at most circuits now. And, but, is, and is that, so what do you think, it, I mean, back in the, I remember in the, because track days didn't really exist until like the mid-90s, I think. 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, yeah. I remember going to some early ones and it was carnage. It was just, because yeah, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was people in front-wheel drive cars with loads of power and no driver yeah. aids and they were just yeah. going off left, right and centre. But so my favourite hobby always about track days now is so you get a bloke turning up with an Arctic and a full team with say about a four year old Ferrari GT two or three in the back and you think you get 
and go go and chat to him, and he seems quite a nice bloke. He said, "Well, look, mate, you've got all this. Why don't you go racing?" And then you see him on the track, and you know you pass him in your Vauxhall Corsa. And the reason these people never race is because at the end of the day, they're Billy Bollocks for their mates who turn up and see all his arthic and his mechanics and everything. But obviously, there's no timing on a track day. Whereas if he went to race. There's an A4 sheet of paper that comes out after qualifying and one after the race that actually tells you how good or bad you are and that's what they want to avoid. Oh, there is timing. Because, of course, your mates are all timing you, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but there's no official A4 mate, uh, sheet to show your mates that actually you've been blown off by a Renault 16, a Ford Capri, and you've got a Ferrari GT2 car. Fluxy, why do so many Brits... Answer me this question... Why do so many Brits drive to the Nürburgring to crash the car on the same corner? Oh, God, God knows. Then, Mike, what, what's that corner? It's a right-hander. It's a right-hander with a... Ca- I think it's the camber change that's catching them out. It's a right-hander with a camber change, and then it goes left. And there's a bloke who makes a living, a German. He's got yeah. a camera. He sits on that corner, and he films British people, and you can tell it's British people because of the rubber plates, getting yeah. it wrong on that corner. And I'll tell you what the favourite one to do is... They get two wheels in the gravel and then they overcorrect and just spear it into the arm corner on the other side of the yeah. track. I had a massive shunt there in '95 on the old ring in the 24-hour race. Yeah, but uh, you, you were racing. Uh, you didn't you didn't drive your own car over there just to no, smack no, it into no, the arm no, car, no, did you? No. I, I was w- racing for the Work Saab team, and we were in the sort of B class, so we weren't overall winners, but we were leading our class, and I think we were. 12th overall, and uh, with 58 minutes to go, I was driving, and all of a sudden it started pissing down, and it had been dry, so I was on dry, the slicks. I got on the radio and said, I've got to come in and change. I said, yeah, yeah, we're all ready for you. And it, all of a sudden it went from a bit of rain to, like, a monsoon. And you know the bridge that where you pull out the paddock, if you go over there now, where you yeah. leave the, that sort of assembly area from? Yeah. There's a bridge. And I f***ing uh, aquaplaned into the bridge. How big and, was it? Oh, look, massive. I actually I actually thought I was going to die. And I was heading towards the concrete. I thought, oh, God, the kids, my poor kids. And luckily, there's a little patch of grass. And instead of going straight into it, the, the grass made it turn slightly. And it went in on the left-hand corner rather than straight in. Isn't it weird how, like, chance plays such a part in in, accident, oh, God, yes. in accidents yeah. like that? I mean, yeah. if you think about, like you said about Tom Price, if he'd hit that Marshall and just hit him, he would have probably just killed him and Tom Tom would be here now. But it was the blinking yeah. fire extinguisher that the yeah. Marshall was yeah. carrying. And then when you look at... When you look at that accident that took Henry Surtees, you think, if you tried... Yeah. If you actually tried to create that for yeah. in a movie you'd really yeah. struggle to get that combination of events, that bouncing yeah. wheel and Henry's yeah. trajectory. When you look at it, it, it breaks my heart because a split second either way and that tyre, that wheel wouldn't have hit Henry Surtees and killed him no, in the way no, that it did. No, it wouldn't. And literally... A split second uh, would yeah, have made, made all the difference. Would have been all the difference. But how many racers have, have lived because of a split second's difference between... Well, I, I, well you I, have. I, I, I've raced against thousands of people in 49 years and I've only actually lost two friends that I know really well personally and all those accidents and everything. I've only known two of my mates have actually been killed racing. But did... Far more of them have died of heart attack or f***ing cancer than yeah. ever have racing. But did you ever have cause to think... Um... It's too dangerous, I'm going to pack it in. What about after that Nürburgring accident? Did it it make you reconsider? No, no, I I went back and won the next Tuscan race the following weekend. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, on on a much... If you think about that, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, on a much lesser scale, I mean, I I got knocked off my BMW bike outside Salford Cathedral December 2019, almost two years ago now. Seven broken bones. I'm lying there on the side of the road. Two, two, Two women got... Helpfully, uh, you realise the difference that women women don't think about helping people; they just help them. It's just I don't care if people say, "Oh, men and women are the same." No, they're not. 
straight away it was two women who were helping me. No thought of whether to, you know, they just did it. Yeah. And the bloke who'd knocked me off, who was a nice enough guy, I ended up, I had to deal with him on the insurance. He was a nice guy. He was very remorseful about what had happened. And he said to me, I'm really sorry I didn't see you. And I was riding a massive 1200cc BMW touring bike with a dirty yeah. great big screen and loads of lights. And I had, even though I got, well, subsequently found out I had seven broken bones, I said to him, shall I get a bigger motorbike? <laughs> like yeah. that. And he was like, wow, sarcasm. I think he was a bit thrown by it. And I, yeah. I sat there, I waited for an ambulance for half an hour and it didn't come, so I just walked home. And I walked through the door and the missus was like, where have you been? And I said, yeah. uh, flying through the air uh, <laughs> and with a bloke with a red Audi that tried to run over my head at 30 mile yeah, an hour. But, but, you know. but it was a, a genuine accident and that's what happened. Well, shit happens Nobody as they say, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? What's the craziest racing incident that you've been caught up in? Oh, Where you've just thought, this can't be happening. What's happening here? Um, qualifying for Daytona in uh, 1988, I, I was in the ADA, which I'd only driven briefly here, but I'd never raced at Daytona before. So what, which class are we in, Fluxy? Just so uh, people... Group C. Right. And um, it was qualifying, and we, we'd had loads of electrical problems, so I hadn't even driven the circuit because the car wouldn't run, and my teammates were Wayne Taylor and Stanley Dickens. And... So they were having a go as I was the, uh, hadn't been there before they, and there was a problem. So that they needed to make sure the car got back and all that. Anyway, I went out. So my first ever laps of Daytona were in the wet, in the dark, at night. No, so, well, obviously at night is in the dark. And on the banking, I was trying to look what was coming behind me, but in those days, all the lights were the same colour, so you didn't know if it was a silk-cut Jaguar or a Morris Minor. That you, so you're looking on the banking. And I drifted towards the top of the banking, whereas I really wanted to be sort of three-quarters of the way up. And Eddie Cheever came between me and the wall and took the mirrors off my car and his car, and he was actually on a qualifying lap. And obviously I wasn't expecting it. And you go, what the is that? And I had to go straight into the pit to make up some excuse about the misfire and come back while I gathered myself together. <laughs> what about excuses? What, ab- what about excuses for breaking the car? Oh, Are you, were you, were you in your career? Were you known as being hard on the car, easy on the car yeah. or medium on the car? Easy. Well, hold on. No, I want to ask you. So I will let you answer just now. Sorry to butt in, but I must ask you. Is that because, like Graham, like Graham Hill, you had been a mechanic, so you understood how the car worked? Did that make you go easy on the car to get to the end of the race? Yeah, and also, the other thing was that I've always earned my money through prize money. So a team would employ you and they pay your expenses, like your fuel and hotel and everything, and that was it. They wouldn't give you any wages. So whatever I raced, I always got 50% of the prize money. And obviously, the further up the race you went, the better the prize money. So even if you only earned 100 quid in the 80s and 90s, I could live on 100 quid for the week. So you always made sure that the car got to the finish. Yeah, but you say you, you, say you could live on that, Fluxy, but... What you mean is, you, you, it's like almost a monastic dedication to the sport that you have. You don't mean you could live the, the good life. You could have a big, oh, no, a no, big no, house. You sorry. You mean you could, thing. you mean you had enough money for food and enough money for a yeah, few, a few pints. Pay the food, look after the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for somebody like you to do that today? No. And, no. Sadly not. Right. No. Those, those days went, ironically, in about 2000. All of a sudden, prize money disappeared from all the sort of racing I went used to do and went into the film production fund so people could appear on Motors TV at three in the morning rather than get any prize money. Because, like, <laughs> Hay Fisher would charge whatever they did to produce a series. And 
what used to be the prize fund went went into that. Well, there's always been gentlemen and players fluxy, hasn't there, in, in, in four-wheeled motor racing? Not the same yeah. in bikes. Bikes is much more of a meritocracy. You know, there's yeah. there, there are some sons of in bike racing, you know, Kenny Roberts Jr., himself uh, a world champion in what we now call MotoGP. But, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. Haven't, I haven't seen... Barry Sheen's lad, or I haven't seen. I haven't seen an Agostini line up in lining up no. on the on the, oh, on I the grid. I worked for Agostini in '79. You worked for him? Yeah, I was his mechanic in '79. Wow! What on bikes? Or did he move no, to cars? cars? Right. Uh, okay. Uh, right. You. Right. Okay. Here we go, Fluxy. Right. Because again, if you look on YouTube, which is where yeah. I spend quite a lot of my time, there's a documentary in two parts, and it was a program made by the BBC. And it was about a yeah. festival at Silverstone, I think, that John Satie's put on, and it was a com- it was it was kind of a retrospective of his racing career. So he had loads of his race bikes there, and he had yeah. the cars that he'd raced, both for Ferrari and Team Surtees, the one that Mike Hale would raced famously. And on yeah. day on the Saturday it was bikes, and on the Sunday it was cars. And I was watching right. it, and in one of these car in one of the clips. He's talking to Igo, and Igo sat in what looks like, uh, not a Group C car, but Can-Am or something like that. And I'm thinking, did Igo race cars? And you're saying, well... No, no, he raced the Formula 2 Chevron from Bolton in 1978, Hmm. and then he raced the Williams FW06 in the British Formula 1 Championship in 79 and 80. The British Formula 1 Championship, wow. Yeah, and I, I, I... I didn't have a full-time drive that year, so I had to go back to mechanicking. And I, uh, Ian, Mc- Ian Dyer, who was Senna's mechanic, and myself ran Agos Williams for the year in 79. A couple of years ago, I'm sat at home, phone goes, and it's a mate of mine who's a car guy. He's never sat his ass on a motorcycle in his life, and he probably never will. But a nice enough geezer, and he calls me up and he said, um, Steve, he's whispering, he's going, Steve, you got to help me. I said, what do you mean? Yeah. He said, I'm at a dinner in London, fancy dinner. I'm sat next to a motorbike racer. I don't know who he is. He keeps talking to me. I don't know who he is. He said, right, okay. I said, we've got to narrow it down. I said... uh, Is he English? I said, yeah, exactly. I said, a foreign type. I think that's what I said. He said, yeah, foreign type. I said, European? He went, yeah, 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 European. I said, right, it'll either be Spanish or Italian. I said, said, how old is he? He said, oh, he's cracking on. I said to him, right. Is he ridiculously, stupidly handsome? And he went, yeah, yeah. yeah. I went, it's Giacomo Agostini. He said, are you sure? I went, absolutely, stake my life on it. He went, right, thanks, mate. And then the next time I saw it, I think I bumped into him at one of these salon previous. And he went, it was Giacomo Agostini. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I was at Brooklands and uh, stood with my missus talking to the editor of Auto Italia magazine. And I go, came past in this Lamborghini. And he pulled up next to us to talk to the editor. And then he was like, well, well, Phil was talking to him. He was eyeing up my missus. And then she said, she went, hey, he winked at me. And I went, what do you mean he winked at you? He's 76 or something like that. Yeah. He still had the old glint in his eye, I go. Are, are you friends on Facebook with a, a girl who races Bentley's called, Ka- uh, I think she's sort of Russian, Katerina Kasilova. Kasilova. No, I think I should be, though. Yeah. <laughs> she's as fit as f- Anyway, you talking about your mate having dinner with Ago, she put a picture on Facebook uh, about a year or two years ago of her sitting next to Ago at a dinner. So I messaged her and went, I was his mechanic. She went, oh, you're joking. I don't believe it. I said, well, f***ing go and ask him then. He so had it all. He had, he had it all, that guy. I, I reckon he's top, at least, he's top five of all time and he's prob, he might, well, he's probably four or five all time, but he's... And that's probably me being biased because, you know, I'm a Brit and I think Elwood was the greatest of all time. He's the nicest bloke I've ever worked for. Really? Yeah, he looked... Just to show you how... So, because he was from motorbikes, we had a caravan, as they used to in the 70s. Yeah. The Formula One thing. And he used to make Ian and I and Malcolm lunch every day. We'd have pasta for lunch that he cooked for us. Anyway, we got to... Really? He cooked the pasta? Wow. He cooked it, yeah. He did all the sauces, the whole lot for us. Anyway, we were at Donington, and we tested on the Thursday, had Friday off, then qualifying Saturday, race Sunday. 
So Thursday night we're having a few beers with him and his girlfriend Stefa, Stephanie, and I. He said to us, "What, what would you like for lunch tomorrow?" And I jokingly said. He, he asked you, Ag- Giacomo Agostini asks you what you want for lunch, and jokingly, yeah. you say... I said, could we have avocado and king prawns? So, <laughs> anyway, we didn't give any... No, no, no further conversation was dealt on it. Anyway, always used to like, lay in in the mornings when we weren't doing much, as you would with a fit girl, you want to... F- anyway, we come down to breakfast about half eight, and his car's not there, and we said... Where's he gone? Anyway, he, he didn't turn up. He got back to the track about half past one, and he'd driven from Donington to Harrods, bought avocados and king prawns for our lunch, and drove back again. So that that's like a two hundred mile round trip. Yeah, and you're seven or eight times world motorbike champion, and that's what you do for your mechanics. Wow, what a guy! I hate him. Far too handsome. Yeah. Far too talented. Yeah. Far too nice. Give me Phil Reed any day. A talented yeah. man who not too many people seem to like. I like him. He's never. I, I, and I thought well, he had. I thought he had the co- coolest helmet. Do you want to hear a story about Phil Reed's helmet colour? I, 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 I recently was going out with his ex-girlfriend Wendy Markey. Hmm. That he was. I'm sure you would have known Wendy. He was with her for about twenty years. Wow. Well, I, I'm she tempted. Sadly, she sadly died at the start of this year with COVID. All right. How sad. Wow. Yeah, I anyway, think... so carry on with your Phil Reed story. No, I was... I was go- well, no, because I was going to say, um, years ago, if you remember, Phil Reed, there was a man who had an eye for the ladies. Yeah, Phil Reed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Reed. where we go racing. <laughs> Phil Reed. Yeah, but he was cool. When you, right, car, so you... Yeah, you look at... you Nowadays, of course, they say, oh, um, you know, any sports person, they say, oh, he's not very nice, is he? And I think, well, do you know what? Some of the... Do you know who's not very nice or wasn't... He's nice now, but he wasn't nice back in the day. Carl Fogarty, four-time World Superbike champion. Yeah, right, I knew no, Carl pretty... So I knew Carl pretty well back in the day. And to be honest, he was a bit of a swine, right? Yeah. He could be very... Carl could be incredibly tough on people um, because he set a very high... St- not, not, he set a very high standard for himself. And if other people didn't come up to his standards, he'd let them know straight away. It, you know, he, he was very blunt. A blunt northerner, as they say, he'd speak his mind, would Cal. He's a yeah. sweetheart. Now, he's mellowed as the year, years have gone by. I think we all do. What, yeah, we all do. But the thing about Reedy, Speedy Reed, um, not Anthony Reed, we'll come to him in a second, because he's, yeah. he's the reason you're on this show. But, um, so, Phil Reed back in the day. He, not the nicest guy. Not the easiest guy to know. Not, you know, I think he's quite shy in some ways. But to me, the coolest, even cooler than 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 Ago or Sheen, because yeah. he looked like a rock star. He didn't look like a motorbike racer. Have you ever seen yeah. pictures of, of Phil Reed back in the day? He's wearing like satin shirts and like really cool shades, and he's got the hair cut and he's got all the gear, and you just think, yeah, he looks like uh, he looks like. Like you said, it looks like the reason he's going motorbike racing is because it means he'll get access. Yeah, he'll get access to the ladies and he'll get a, a Rolls Royce. And he, He's not really doing it. He's not really doing it for can sport. I, can I now tell you something that is really, really sad, but also I, I, I'm not sure if the last bit I'm going to tell you is 100% true, but I have every reason to. When I got, so I, I used to know Wendy Markey from racing in the 70s. Yeah. And then didn't uh, see her for 35 years. And then I happened to be invited to this doghouse too. And she was there. We got. We should explain that the doghouse is the wives and girlfriends yeah. of racers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, get chatting to her. We go out a few times. Anyway, she said that because obviously she was explaining about Phil and she'd gone through all this with him and that. Anyway, he was then, this is like two years ago, living in a, a, a two-berth caravan on a farm with a battery outside to run everything off. And somebody got to hear about this, and somebody told Ago, and Ago got behind it and got him into some proper sheltered care, care, caring accommodation. 
Well, that doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest, because everything I, everything I hear about Giacomo Agostini makes me hate him a little bit more because he's too handsome. We've said this: too handsome, yeah. too talented, and too and too blinking nice as well. Oh, one more Agostini story for you. So I'm I can, you can tell I got stories all day to me. I love it. So I was racing a three thirty LMB Ferrari at Goodwood for the revival in two thousand and four. And Ago was there, so I went and found him, and uh, chit-chat, chit-chat. He said, oh, what are you doing, Brophy? I said, I'm racing this Ferrari. He said, oh, come and show me. And this Ferrari then was probably worth about five mil. It's worth an awful lot more now. Anyway, and it's owned by a guy called Harry Leventus. And Harry made his money. He owns the Coca-Cola registration license for Europe and has done since 1962. Wow, I bet that's worth a bob or two, as they say. So that's why he's got a few nice cars. Mm. Anyway, so I drag Ago over to show him the old 330, and Harry's there. And so I introduce Harry to Ago, and uh, the first thing Ago says to him is, hey, why you let this crazy man drive your very expensive car? He's crazy. And Harry's looking at me thinking, why am I paying this bloke to drive my car? Because... As the aforementioned, the other Reed, and we are talking, of course, of Sir Anthony Reed, yeah. as he should rightly be, be known, who said to me, Steve, you must get Fluxy on your show. He's got some amazing stories. He's such a great raconteur. You must have him. And, and I thought, yeah, you're right. Oh, be- good be- old Reedy. Well, well, yeah. We had, a, we had a beer together the other day at uh, the... Um, Walter Hayes Festival at Silverstone. There were six of us there together. Mine, Donnelly, reading myself, uh, Dave Loudon, uh, another couple of old boys. Steve, I've Steve I've only just it. met I've only just met Martin. I met Martin. I never met him. I met him this year at Goodwood, and I can't even tell you what happened in the first. Anthony introduced us in the bar. Tiff was there as well. We all met, and yeah, uh, and my best man. yeah, man. Yeah, I'm aware yeah, of that. Yeah, he was my best man at my yeah, wedding. I'm aware of that. Tiff was there as well. Uh, and Martin said something. It, I can't even tell the story because it might get him in trouble, but it was just, he suggested inappropriate behaviour, Martin, yeah. within a minute, less than a minute of meeting yeah. him. He said, Steve, yeah. let's let's do redacted, yeah. redacted, redacted. And I was like, I thought, well, maybe we know each other a little bit better. I might be interested, but... As we've known each other for less than a minute, I think I'm going to pass on that, mate. But feel <laughs> feel feel free to proceed yourself. And I just thought these boys are never giving in. These no. boys, you know. I mean, I think the generations before you. I mean, you know, you'd see you'd you'd see footage or photographs of somebody like Mike Halewood at the TT and Stanley Woods would be there, and he looked like yeah. an old old man. And he certainly yeah. wasn't going to be getting on a more. Or Jeff Duke could be there, who still yeah. looked good, but he looked like he was dressed like an old guy. He looked oh. like an old guy, and he certainly wasn't going to get on a motorbike. Yeah. Nobody would have even yeah. thought that. But you lot, you're just not stopping. You're not getting uh, out of the cars. I had a great um, um, description of Jeff, Jeff Duke a few years ago. He was a. He was the Englishman's poor man Agostini with his looks and style. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Duke invented being stylish on a motorbike. Everybody, everybody else looked a bit. He was the first modern racer, the first person yeah. to wear one-piece leathers. Jeff Duke, yeah. How about that? Yeah, but obviously, Agu went on to win a few things, and uh, I know Jeff won a bit, but nothing in the league of Agu. Well, you won't hear any argument from me on that one. Um, we're going to get you back on again because there's just so much to talk about. But I do want to talk about your book. Um, you oh, are that's very as nice we- of you. <laughs> well, as well as being, um, a, you know, various people have said to me when we've talked about this and we've got into conversation, and people have said, "Please don't feel embarrassed. I don't think you will be." And I've said. Is there someone who should have got more opportunity? And they always say, yeah, Fluxy. You're one of the two or three names that comes up as someone really? who... Yes, mate. You know this. Oh, as I someone who's got... To... As someone who had the talent to achieve way more, but for whatever reason, just didn't get the opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I've su- uh, Steve, I've, success- I've successfully brought about my own downfall. <laughs> 
But the other thing as well is, I was doing a little bit of research. I always do some research. Most people would think I don't, but I actually do. And and I was looking on some forums at mentions of your name and, and other racers or people involved in, in if people who've come across you either because you've instructed them or they've been on a track day or you've raced against them are saying, will somebody please sit Fluxy down and get him to write a book? And finally, you have sat down and you have written a book. And I'll bet, a pound to a pinch of dog muck, as my dad would say, that yeah. you, you've actually written it, because unlike most racing drivers, you are also a talented writer. I really like well, your writing. I, I'll be absolutely honest with you. Um, I, it's a joint venture bes- between myself and Matt James. Matt's the editor of Motorsport News and has written about me for 35 years. And we've, we've got one thing in common that we love getting pissed together. So, <laughs> and so it, it just made it a load. Um, Eric Verdon Rowe uh, approached me in February and I thought he was taking the piss and said, Fluxy, we must do a book. Here's some money. And oh, I thought, oh, right. Well, if you've sent me some money, <laughs> we said to Matt, we better get on and do it. And it's a 50-50 agreed contract partnership. So it's Matt James and I. Now, obviously, you're a man who does not hold back. Tries, tries not to. In any way. <laughs> then I get into trouble. Yeah, but, you know. That, no, that's, no, I don't give a shit now. Yeah, that's, well, that's what makes it... Uh, well, it's like you said. You said. So it comes back to something. I, I've got a terrible habit of starting a story and not finishing it. But when I got on top of my motorbike, people said to... Again, so I've had three biggies. Three... Three, three ones where you're in the spinning donut in hospital and they're wondering whether you, they need to, yeah. they're sewing bits of your back on and, you know, well, all that sort of stuff. So I've had three big ones it, 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 and they seem to be sort of roughly separated by about a decade. So I'm thinking mm. a big one every decade. And, and somebody said to me, you're going to stop riding motorbikes now. I mean, you're joking. I'm 57. Why would I stop? If I was, right, if I was 37 and I'd had three big motorbike accidents, I'd be thinking, yeah, maybe yeah. I should stop. But I'm not. I'm, a, you know, it's funny, isn't it? The same middle aged, middle aged. Well, well, middle aged. What am I going to be? 114. I think, <laughs> I think, I think we're quite a bit past the middle. I'm just yeah. going to keep going until somebody. I think like you, until somebody nails the lid on the box. I'm just going to keep going. It's like I went to a school reunion a, a few weeks ago, and quite a few. Of my, I'm only 57, but quite a few of my contemporaries are settled into retirement, and they're going, "Are you retired?" And I went. You're joking, aren't you? So, retire? Why would you do that? Why would you do because, that? Because we, we're both very fortunate to love what we actually do. It's not really a job, is it? I mean, we get paid. but Sometimes, day, it's yeah. Crack. Yeah. No, no, yeah. If I, I, um, if I had to go and do a proper job every day, I think I would have probably retired. At Mate, you, would, you wouldn't last till lunchtime. Let me no, tell you, they, unless you were working in, I don't know, unless you were working as a mercenary or a yeah. prison officer in a high-security jail or something, or you were a roadie, yeah. you were a roadie for a heavy metal band, all of which oh, you've I, probably I, done I, at I, some I point. I fancy doing that, Steve. That's, right. you know, a list of jobs that I, you know, if I hadn't have done this, what would you have loved to have done? And I'd love to have been a roadie for status quo in the 80s. <laughs> A great place to stop. What's your book called? When's it coming out? It's going to come out in March or April. And I I think if you look at any uh, work that you've checked up on me, I think it's probably going to be called What I've Had on My Helmet for 40 Years, not the one in my trousers. So no flux given? No, oh. for flux's sake. For flux's sake, right. <laughs> Careful how you say that. Mate, will you please, please come back on the show? You, you I, I mean, Reedy said, like, you know the way, the, you know the way he is. He said, Steve, you must get yeah. Fluxy on your show. He's got so many stories. And I was like, I'm sorry, sorry, oh, Anthony, oh. for my impression of, of you, which is oh, terrible. Very, but... very good. I must ring Anthony and let him know. Thank you, mate. You've done the best Reedy impression I've heard, Steve. Well, he's one of the he's one of the best guys. And, and your name comes up with other mavericks, as we would call them. Uh, yeah, but, but the thing but is, I, about the other Mavericks that they mentioned, like Gordon Spice and... Um, I'll tell you a quick Gordon Spice story. 
I'm yeah, at a do, I'm at a do at the Royal Hospital at Chelsea. You know where the Chelsea pensioners yeah, live. Yeah, yeah. We're we're in the dining hall. It's this amazing environment to have dinner. Just a privilege to be in there. A God and Spice gets up to give a. It's a more sport orientated event. Yeah. A God and Spice gets up and he's tartan truce to give a speech, and he is four sheets to the wind. Never mind yeah. three sheets. He's four or five sheets to the wind. And, and he starts getting booed because he starts telling it like it is. And people start booing him. And he said, I don't care what you lot think. None of you were ever quick anyway. And he, wa- he, walks, he walks away from the mic. He walks away from the microphone because he was the good bit. He walks away from the microphone. And then he comes back to the microphone and says, except Reedy. And points at Anthony, who I'm sat next to. And Reedy dined out on that story for quite... But it's, if, yeah, if I've Gordon never Spice... Him, I've never heard him tell that, Steve. Well, it's a good one. If Gordon Spice, who himself was no mean talent, says... You were the only. You're the only one in this room that was ever really quick. I just thought that was one of the funny. Uh, we just couldn't yeah, stop laughing. So, so I've got to interrupt you and tell you this story, and I haven't told this in years. But you just said Reedy and after dinner speaking. I think it's either eighty-eight or eighty-nine. We're myself and then the wife, as we were still married then, were invited to the Porsche. Um, annual awards do at the Metropole of Birmingham and as a, as a guest. So we're on the top table and they've flown Michael Andretti over as the main guest for the evening. So we're on the top table with Michael and uh, they've booked Mike Reed, hence the story, yeah, as the compare and comedian for the evening. Well, apparently, unbeknown to us at the time, he's got two shows and... The, the bloke from Porsche has booked the Blue Show. But we don't know this at this point. So right, OK. Anyway, we'd like to welcome up on stage Mike Reed. Round of so applause. when we say Mike on. Reed, we should say not the Radio 1 DJ, the guy who's no, in no. EastEnders, the guy oh, who plays... The guy who played... No, he's in EastEnders, and he played the jeweller in uh, Snatch, yeah, the yeah, Guy Ritchie yeah. movie. Uh, Cockney yeah. geezer and a stand-up comedian of the old yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. So he comes on, and obviously there's all these Porsche ladies in their finery, and the first thing he said is, F- the posh fanny in here tonight. <laughs> and, the, and the bloke from Porsche that I'm too down for who's him is like just gone under the table. Then he, then, then he tells a really disgusting joke. <laughs> um, uh, so the Porsche bloke has to get up and go and have a word with him. Right. And... Uh, like says, you know, yeah, what, what are you doing, Mike? This isn't suitable. He said, I'm doing what you fucking booked me for. He said, blue. I'm doing blue. Yeah. He said, oh, we can't. He said, well, can't you change it? He said, no, because I've got it all set out for the night. And he said, I'm going to have to go then. You know, <laughs> took his money and went. Right. Never never reappeared back on stage with a different version. Got his five grand and f- Brilliant to talk to you. I've got to go. The producer's yeah. waving his finger at me. We've gone on too long. Get you on again. Thank you so much and the best of luck with your book, mate. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Loxie. Bye bye. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday. <laughs>